is going to be impressive. We're reading some scriptures that only start the thoughts. And I want, I want to assign this afternoon, when you get back home, after your lunch, and maybe a nap, pick up the Bible and pick up in chapter 2 where we leave off today. It's going to be a fascinating challenge, and it is a challenge, a welcome challenge, I think. Let's stand together and read God's Word together. Oh, and let me thank you for your prayers for Irene. She's recovering well, especially her dispatch capabilities. Now to verse 2. Here, imitating Christ's humility. That's, in essence, the, 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 the topic. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. This is Paul saying, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thank you for your attention to the Lord's Word. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Uh, that song we sang earlier, I Want to Be Like Jesus, and uh, heading to the top of this passage of Scripture, imitating Christ, you know, that's a certain because really, when you think about what uh, this passage is about, it's exactly about being like Jesus. Um, I want to begin with this morning uh, with this illustration. Um, oh, actually, it's, it's a little bit of our history. The writer of this piece says, We can see in our national headlines the power of unity to fulfill a common goal. Each of us will never forget what happened September 11, 2001. Out of that terrible day, we saw our nation join together in unity. President George W. Bush had the support of the nation as he led the, na- as he led the nation into the war against the terrorists who murdered so many innocent Americans. But it didn't take long for people to start pointing fingers. What did our president know before the attacks? What could the government have done to prevent the terrorist attacks? The unity that was born through terror soon unraveled. We forgot who our enemy is. The same happens within the church. We can so easily begin to point fingers at other sheep or become critical of the shepherd. All the while, we forget that we have a common enemy outside the walls of the church. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Let's not forget who the enemy is, which unfortunately has happened in too many churches, I'm sorry to say. Well, in the passage we looked at last week from chapter 1, um, the Apostle Paul begins to address the issue of unity in verse 27 of chapter 1, where he says, Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, 
I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So he's touched on this topic in the previous passage. He understood that the Roman government, nor the, nor the people who opposed the gospel, nor believers who had differences of opinion, were the enemy. The enemy was not flesh and blood, but the rulers, the authorities, the power of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It was the pagan culture and the spiritual forces behind that culture that they must contend with. And to contend successfully required a cohesiveness that could not be disrupted by differences of opinion or petty arguments that began over inconsequential issues that became consequential because the opposing parties could not come to agreement or let it go. Case in point, I read about a church uh, split that resulted from a disagreement. This is where it started. It resulted from a disagreement that began because someone brought a jello salad to a potluck that contained cool whip rather than real whipped cream. That speaks well of us, doesn't it? And so we sometimes wonder why the unchurched have a problem with the church and Christians. Without unity, we can become our own worst enemy. Psalm 133.1. This is God's encouragement to unity. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Ephesians 4. Verses 2 and 3. Paul writes, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Make every effort, underline that, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And it's in that passage, in Ephesians, verse 2, it tells the key to keeping the unity that he talks about in verse 3. And those keys are being completely humble, gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love. Remember it says love looks over, overlooks a multitude of sins? Okay? Or offenses? Or disagreements? Or, or, or. So, so Paul here begins his presentation, God's blueprint for unity with an appeal to the Philippians by their deepest experiences as Christians. You'll notice uh, in the first uh, verse, you'll see the word if four times. Four if statements. Typically, when we use the word if in English, we are conveying a degree of doubt. Well, But in the Greek language, and in this particular grammatical form, the ifs are used to express certainty. It is simply a rhetorical way of forcefully saying, since Paul was basically saying, since this is true, then. Make sense? Since this is true, then. So Paul's point was built on the fact that he knew the Philippians 
would attest to the truths and reality of each of these things that he mentions in verse 1. So there are four statements then here that should be motives for unity. Now, I don't know how diverse the Philippian church was, culturally speaking. But I'm sure that at the very least there were a variety of temperaments represented as would be true in any church body. Amen? (laughs) So in spite of whatever differences that were evident in that church, Paul calls them to focus on what they have in common. Here's what they have in common. You have received encouragement from Christ. The Greek word for encouragement has the root meaning of coming alongside to give assistance by offering counsel or exhortation. The Spirit of Christ is called, the Holy Spirit is called the Counselor or Helper. That is what the Spirit does. When we need exhortation or encouragement, He, the Spirit, counsels or helps us by reminding us, bringing to our minds the promises of Scripture, or He turns us to the Scripture so we can read those encouragements, those promises. Then Paul says, you have experienced Christ's love. Christ's love brings us comfort. The Greek word for comfort comfort has the meaning of speaking closely with someone, with the added idea of giving comfort or solace. It is a word that is used when a mother picks up a crying child to hold that child and speak tender words of comfort and love. The, the, the Philippians had experienced the comfort of Christ during the opposition that they had faced. And in Romans 8, 38, and 39, we're reminded of Christ's love during whatever we face in life. Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that, it is, that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And then he says, you have enjoyed the fellowship of Christ's Spirit. The Greek word for fellowship describes partnership, sharing, participation. It is a word that describes our relationship to the Spirit. And it also describes our relationship with fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. As Christians, we really are new creations in Christ. And we've been adopted into the family of God. So that all believers are now brothers and sisters in Christ. We delight in belonging to the fellowship of God's forever family. And He unites us by His Spirit, doesn't He? And then Paul says, You have been shown mercy by Christ. The words tenderness and compassion in this last if statement, the words here are synonyms of one another, and both words in the Greek language can be translated as mercy or tender mercy. 
They refer to the intense care and compassion and deep sympathy that Jesus has for us who, as, as people who come together as the body of Christ. And he understands then the challenges, the suffering, and the pain that his followers face at times. Now we can say, well, you know, we haven't really experienced too much of that. But obviously the Philippians had. They'd gone through some difficult times together and they, they realized that they had been shown mercy by Christ. Well then, Paul says, in the light of those things, it shouldn't be such a great, great thing to ask you to maintain the unity that God has given you. Okay. So what are the attributes? Of that unity. Well, first of all, this kind of unity is not uniformity. God doesn't want us to be robots that act and look and all think alike. So, it's not uniformity, meaning that we aren't all to be alike in every way. We are diverse people. God created us to be different and yet to be unified. And so, our goal must be to have unity in the midst of our diversity. In the church, we have freedom to be unique. We do not have the freedom to be divided. So, the first attribute. Paul says, be unified in mind, having your thoughts fixed on God. Be unified in mind, having your thoughts fixed on God. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says... Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Colossians 3.1 Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where our focus is to be. And it's not that our minds are never on the stuff of life that we have to deal with daily, obviously. But it is about a God consciousness in every aspect or activity of our lives. It is the goal of including and honoring God in everything we do. It is the realization that we should do all we do as unto the Lord. Right? The second attribute, be unified in heart, having the same love for God and others. Be unified in heart, having the same love for God and others. Folks, this should be the signature mark of Christians, of Christ followers. We love God, we love others. Jesus said that the world would know we are His disciples because we love one another. He did say that, right? 
And that love is not intended to be restricted to the confines of the church building. Or only shown to other followers of Jesus. That love is to extend outside the walls of the church building, is it not? You know, the world we live in talks a lot about love. I was thinking of some of the old secular songs. I remember, uh, all you need is love. La, 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 la. All you need. The Beatles. Seals and Crofts, I think it was, saying love is the answer. But, but the love that they talk about in so many of those songs is humanly generated. It's situationally dependent. It's based strictly on feelings or even reciprocation. As long as I get some back. Right? But it is our love for God and His love flowing, flowing through us that enables us to love others as He loves them. <clears throat> and that's not our natural tendency, is it? It's not mine anyway. We are dependent on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to live and love that way. Romans 5.5 5 tells us, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Folks, that's the only way. It's a supernatural thing to love like God loves, unconditionally. The next attribute. Be unified in spirit, having the same purpose and mission that God desires. We are to be unified by a common goal, and that is the accomplishment of God's will in our world. If we're able to stay focused and unified on that mission, then the means to accomplish it, even though we have different ideas about what that looks like, and I know we do sometimes, will not be something that divides us. It means sharing the same priorities, being united in purpose, and embracing a common way of seeing the world. Not through the lens of what Paul refers to as hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And we've got a lot of that out there now. And even the church of has bought into that view. But rather, we see the world through the lens of Scripture. The Scripture tells us we can have the mind of Christ, and when we do, we see, <clears throat> we see the world from God's perspective. We see the world as God sees it. We see a world lost. We see a world broken and separated from God in need of redemption and restoration, and we join God in that redemptive work. We do that in obedience to the words of Jesus, where He said in Mark 16, 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Or, as Paul stated in the previous chapter, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 27, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That's God's call on our lives. 
And then the next attribute. Do not be motivated by self-interest and personal prestige. <clears throat> the, word, <clears throat> the word that Paul used that is translated selfish ambition is the same word that he used back in chapter 1, verse 17, when he described some of the rival preachers who were doing what they were doing just to bring dis- disrepute to Paul. Remember that? <clears throat> That's chapter 1, verse 17. The word denotes a person who is only out for their own self-interest. That was the only reason these people were preaching the gospel. The great thing about Paul is he was able to have a good attitude about it. He said, well, I don't care what their motive is. The gospel is still being preached. Go God. That kind of a thing. By definition, the Christian should always have greater concern than just for oneself. But sadly, there have even been some Christians who have been driven by selfish ambition. And that we even see that in Paul's day as he writes about that. And unfortunately, it is some of those same Christians who are driven by selfish ambition who have made the news and cast a bad light on Christians in general. <clears throat> Did you know that um, when it came to trustworthy occupations... Pastors or preachers used to be right at the top of that list. Now we're down there because of some of the things that we've seen that have made the news. We're down there with shady lawyers and, excuse me, used car salesmen. That's where we rank now. <clears throat> Herman Edwards is a, uh, if some of you who are football fans know that name, is the is the colorful and witty coach who was formerly with the New York Jets and the Kansas City Chiefs and now is head coach at Arizona State University. When it came to his thoughts on teamwork, he said this, the players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of the helmet, not the name on the back of their jersey. Talking about selfish ambition, drawing Attention to yourself. No, this is a team thing. We pray for the, we play for the team, not for ourselves. Then vain conceit refers to, to the one who does everything for personal prestige. They try to appear as something they are not. Simply, they want to be admired by others. The story is told that one evening a man in Dearborn, Michigan, in a Dearborn, Michigan restaurant, bumped into no less the man who was at that time the CEO of Chrysler Corporation, Lee Iacocca. Oh, Mr. Iacocca, the man exclaimed, what an honor to meet you. Say, my name is Jack and I'm having a business dinner with some colleagues over there at the corner table. It would really impress my friends if you would come over in a few minutes and say, Hi, Jack, like you know me. Iacocca good-naturedly agreed, and so a few minutes later, he went over to the table and said, Hello, Jack, how are you? Jack then looked up and snapped, Not now, Lee, we're busy. (laughs) As Christians, our goal should be to honor God and bring glory to Him, not ourselves. Our goal should be to direct people's eyes toward God 
rather than having their eyes on us. And then, the next attribute of unity, think of others ahead of yourself. That is a counter-cultural message. We are encouraged to look out for number one. If you don't look out for me, no one else will. And it's contrary to Scripture. We are to look out for one another, aren't we? Some years ago, a commentator on the Western cultures wrote this, We have seen a broad shift from a culture of humility to the culture of what you might call the big me. From a culture that encouraged people to think humbly of themselves to a culture that encourages people to see themselves as the center of the universe. When Paul says in humility, think of others as better than yourselves, I think he, I believe he means to think of others ahead of yourselves. He didn't mean that they are better or that we are worse. Rather, Paul suggested that we prioritize others ahead of ourselves. And we need to realize that humility, as Paul talks about it, is not self-abuse or self-hatred. That's not what this is about. Someone has said the humble person is not the one who thinks less of himself, but the one who thinks of himself less. you need to hear that again? The humble person is not the one who thinks less of himself, but the one who thinks of himself less. The humble person is the person who thinks of himself or herself accurately. They know they are a special creation of God, and they give all credit to God, and yet they yield themselves to God for God's sake and for the sake of others. It is an attitude of humility that says, everyone is important and I am no better than anyone else. It's that same attitude that moves us to serve one another. Howard Hendricks tells about the time that he was ministering in Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. It was an early morning breakfast. There were many people from the military, quite a few people from various government offices, some craftsmen and laborers of various kinds, quite a mix. After Dr. Hendricks had finished speaking, he noticed Senator Mark Hatfield stacking chairs and picking up napkins that had fallen on the floor. Oregon used to have something to brag about, I guess. Dr. Hendricks said, Ladies and gentlemen, if you are impressed that you are a United States senator, you don't stack chairs and pick up napkins. That's the attitude that we're to have. And then finally, he says, the final attribute of unity is this. Be conscious of the needs of others. Be conscious of the needs of others. Really, it relates closely to the previous thought. We need to avoid focusing on what I need all the time and be concerned about what others need. And we need to note, Paul was not saying we should never be interested in our own needs, but that we should be at least as equally interested in the needs of others and based again on that previous thought, we should many times put people's needs ahead of our own. 
you come first. And I think you could sum up all these attributes of unity by saying they are about being selfless rather than selfish. Our focus needs to be on God and others rather than self. Our focus needs... We need to think about how far it would go to maintain unity in the church if we merely followed the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, the greatest example of all is Jesus himself. That's why that song we sang earlier is so appropriate. I want to be like Jesus. The greatest example of all is Jesus himself. In fact, in the very next verse after this passage we read today, verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians, it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He is our example. Jesus certainly was not motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, he did consider others better than himself. He put others' interests and needs ahead of his own. If if he had not done that, we would not have a Savior who hung on the cross. Amen? He would not have done that. He put others' interests and needs ahead of his own. And we, we are called to be like Jesus. And if we are like Jesus, then there will be unity in His body. Father, thank You for Paul's advice to us as followers of Jesus. Imitate, Jesus, Your humility. And in doing so, recognizing, first of all, what we have enjoyed as followers, as Christ followers. The encouragement of being united with Jesus. The comfort of His love. The fellowship of the Spirit. The tenderness and compassion we have been through. And then, may those attributes that foster and maintain unity be evident in our lives as the people of God. That we would be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That we would not be people motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit. We would in humility consider others better than ourselves. We would look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. That should be a description, Lord Jesus, of those who follow You. That is a description of a church that is unified. And I pray, Lord God, that that will be a description always of who we are as the Longmont Church of the Nazarene. A united body of believers committed to fulfill the mission that God has given us to reach a lost world and disciple them as committed followers of Jesus Christ. Again, thank you 
for the appropriate, the word that is appropriate in our day and time, it applies to us right now where we are. Lord God, may we not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.